Welcome to Innovation Destination, the podcast channel for supply chain industry professionals. This episode is part of our Executive Perspective series, where we will hear from the C-suite of the electronics and manufacturing industry. Here's your host, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Connect, Tyler Fussner. Josh, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. I'm uh, happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. And um, if you can please uh, introduce yourself and, and tell us a little bit about Bisco. Yep. So my name is Joshua Ulick. I'm the Director of Materials and Operations at Bisco Industries. A little bit about Bisco. So we are a broadline distributor. We have 53 locations, predominantly in North America. Uh, we just opened our first brick and mortar off-continent in the Philippines. Right now, we're a little bit north of $300 million in revenue, have 550 employees, and we touch on pretty much every customer market segment out there. Everything from mill arrow to printed circuit board, uh, communication, uh, you name it, we're pretty much in it. Uh, aside from that, you know, we're really just looking to be able to service the customer the best we possibly can. And that's really one of our differentiators is what we really focus on is local presence, local service, local support, especially in a time when so many other channel partners out there that, you know, we might be kind of going head to head against sometimes are really doing the opposite, right? They're closing brick and mortars. They're rolling back to call centers. They're saying, go online. That's your, you know, kind of only option. And, and those are great for a lot of customers, but we also found a huge customer base who's really looking for that in-person and service where they're coming out shaking your hand and saying hey we're here to help you what do you need solved yeah excellent and that, and i think you know having that ability to get the FaceTime, you know is, is always helpful for everyone involved uh, absolutely and that's something we've kind of seen almost uh you know change uh, in the last couple years right during covid i, I believe everybody thought that it was going to go you know the exact opposite right 180 degrees the other way that it was everything was going to be you know all digital and no more FaceTime. the people were going to be locked in their houses and and it really has uh you know in our opinion kind of gone the opposite right people were locked up for a while and they realized hey we don't really love this we want to get out and talk to people and shake people's hands and, and see people face to face and for us it, it's been really good for the last you know 24 months so yeah yeah, very cool. I'm sure everyone has had the uh, Teams calls burnouts. And <laughs> so, yeah, it's helpful to be able to, to shake hands and, and meet in person. Absolutely. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, touching on a little bit about coming out of the pandemic, what have been some changes that have been implemented uh, by Bisco over the past few years that have really helped you untangle the supply chain backlog? Yeah, so, you know, this is a pretty complex question, but I want to hone in on, on one part of it. And really what it comes down to for us is procurement models. Procurement models are often only as good as the data they are built on. Scenarios like COVID are difficult to predict, and until the data is able to be collected and built into a model, that current model is insufficient and can't react properly and usually quick enough. Because there's usually these long kind of tail that lead into, hey, how do we get all this information? And then what do we do with it? And it takes some time to be able to get that information and actually take action or make decisions on it. So one of the main changes that Bisco made over the last few years was to adjust and update many of our procurement models to be able to include all those new data points and utilize those in our ROI and decision processes. Another change that Bisco made was to refocus on our customers' problems and how we solve those problems. Uh, we wanted to utilize our existing network and expertise. We really weren't looking to do an extreme pivot and say, okay, this is now our new business model, right? We wanted to say, hey, this is what we've been doing for over 50 years. We're good at it. There's customers out there who need that. And that's really what we wanted to double down on. 
lastly, Bisco has, you know, grown cr uh, customers, projects, supply base, you know, you name it, we're more diverse than previously before the pandemic. And it's really helped us to be able to weather some of that uncertainty, selling into so many customer market segments at the onset, right? In 2020, you would have thought aerospace would have fallen off of a cliff because there was no more commercial travel and the 737 issues. And the problem is that took a little while to unwind. So where some of the stuff that we saw on the industrial front, right? Like by April of 2020, that had evaporated. Well, some of the aerospace stuff had a little bit longer contract period. There were essential businesses. Um, these items like so aerospace, medical still took, you know, a while to be able to see those impacts. And it wasn't really until 2021 that we kind of saw aerospace like truly crater. And when I'm talking about aerospace, I'm saying, you know, mill defense, all those different items, right, that we kind of clump into this one segment. Um, and at that same time in 2021, the industrial side or, or the things that are not the kind of aerospace and defense started to make this shift, right? So we really see it in, in a few different ways that one customer segment might be down, another up. And overall, we're able to be able to see kind of, you know, a little bit slower and steadier growth uh, compared to if we were in one customer market segment and we were going after one small kind of niche of products. If we were in just aerospace and focused on just, you know, electronics, right? then you can have some pretty big fluctuations based on market conditions. So okay. I would yeah, say our, our big takeaway, you know, diversify and use the data. Right, right. And, you know, having gone through these latest trials and, and tribulations, you know, the future isn't always certain. But with these, these changes that you guys have implemented, how, you know, how do you feel it's set up BISCO to weather the storms of the future? Yeah. So I believe that there has been a lot that we have done, but there's still so much more we could do. And that sounds like kind of one of those like canned responses, but that, that's in all honesty, right? No business is perfect. And, and I'll be honest, we are not. But the one thing that we really try to do is take lessons learned. Say, hey, we didn't do the best at this. How do we look at it, look in the mirror and say, what do we do better tomorrow? That is something that's part of our company culture. We kind of meet, look at different items. This really came partly from our quality side, right? Where everyone's going together, looking at root cause analysis and going, how do we make it better next time? That culture is part of kind of what, you know, I would say is helped set us up and, and will allow us to be able to continue to perform going forward. There's definitely gonna be some difficult times coming up over maybe the next 36 months with a lot of uncertainty. There's so many factors If anybody who tells you that they know exactly what's going to happen is either lying or they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> um, the government, uh, you know, individuals in industry, what's going to happen with the commercial property market, interest rates. There are so many variables that I don't think anybody, you know, has a, a really good crystal ball, so to speak, of what's going to happen. But I, I can tell you that there's going to be a lot of uncertainty going forward, especially in certain customer market segments. We're already starting to see this, like markets don't like uncertainty, businesses don't like uncertainty. And during uncertainty, often, especially for public corporations, it's, hey, what did you do for me this quarter? They want to see profits. So I think we're going to see a shift in, you know, who really, you know, holds all of the power. Uh, employees really had it for quite a bit of time. And, and some of that's going to shift back to the employers. There's definitely going to be some changes. Um, so yeah, it'll be a very interesting time. But I think all the businesses, you know, that are really set up good, have a good infrastructure in place and, and really stick to their core customers or core competencies will weather the storm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a strong point. Um, understanding who you are and, and being able to execute on that 
Yeah, absolutely. If, if you're trying to shift what your you know, business model is every few years, it, it's going to be difficult. Well, I wanted to talk to you about technology and uh, something you had mentioned with um, updating your procurement models. And I'm, I'm curious, uh, is Bisco implementing uh, any new technologies into their processes, maybe AI or uh, any ML? Um, and if so, how's that helping you improve your distribution? Absolutely. One of the things we're actually focusing on right now is uh, some of the algorithms that we have in place. So we're utilizing our internal programmers. So we have an internal team of in-house programmers who work on our uh, MRP, ERP, and CRM systems, all of our WMAS stuff, so on the warehousing side. And really what we're looking at is improving some of those algorithms that we already have in place, using our data analytics side to be able to help empower some of the teams as well as offer more information to all the IoT stuff. So in warehousing, we will have all kinds of pieces of technology that don't necessarily replace human beings, but they make them more efficient. And that's really what we're searching for, right? When we're looking at cost centers throughout the business, we wanna find out how can we make them as efficient as possible and how can we aid in all of those different departments. That's what we're really focusing on lately, especially you know over the last few years, we were able to build a little bit of cash. We say, okay, what can we do with some of this and how do we want to invest it? And in algorithms, that's really one of the things that we're seeing. Uh, we've already had some of the technology in place uh, when we're coming to hardware side, but we want to say, how do we build out some of, you know, kind of all of those. This goes back to like the procurement models as well, because a lot of that is based on, you know, mathematical models that we're saying, okay, how do we use this to be able to either purchase better? How do we use it on the warehousing side to be able to pick, pull, put away all of these things as, uh, you know, as efficiently as possible. So we're constantly looking at new technology, seeing what's out there, uh, comparing, you know, some of our offerings. Uh, we recently just switched most of our uh, wearables. So the items that the team members are wearing as they're kind of going through and doing the pick, pull, put away process. They have these scanners that they're utilizing so that they can have access to the system, you know, anywhere throughout you know, the network in the warehouses. Uh, we recently switched to some new Honeywell products. Those are awesome. I'm really, really in love with those so far. And we're just kind of, you know, refocusing on our processes and saying, how do we take these? How can we do them better? And what are some of the new pieces of technology that are out there that enable us to do it better than we were already doing it? Yeah, yeah, I think it's important to understand, and, and you touched on this, you know, maybe there's some hesitation or trepidation for some integrating these newer technologies, but it's not about the displacement. Like you it, said, it's about reinforcement to the it, workforce you have. Exactly. That's, you know, one of the things we're finding, let's say, on, on the warehousing side, right? Throughout our network, we have 70-ish warehouse team members. We're not looking to cut down on that. We're just looking to prevent... Uh, or have to, you know, slow down the hiring process, right? Instead of needing another 10 next month and, you know, so on. We're saying, okay, how can we continue to do with the team members we have? How can we make them more efficient, more productive? Because really at Bisco, we're looking for tenure, right? We want team members to stick around. We want longevity. You can see that in most of our policies and processes. You know, we give sabbaticals. We do all these things. It takes a long time to train and bring somebody up to speed. We're really not looking to be able to, you know, gut a workforce, bring them back based on whatever economic cycle is, is at hand right now. And we want to be able to have team members for the long haul, say, how can we make them as efficient as possible? And then look at that again next month, next year and say, how can we do better? And that's, I think, what some companies, you know, don't necessarily do great. And then there are some companies that do amazing at that, where they're constantly looking in the mirror and saying, how do we look at this process and make it better? Because many times 
there's always new things that you can do, especially if there's a fresh set of eyes that look at it, if there's a new piece of technology to, you know, to this portion that we're talking about now. As all of these things become available, you don't know what you don't know, and, and nobody can ever be a complete expert. It's really you know, kind of fostering this lifelong learning and being a master of your craft so that I kind of tell this to, you know, all of like my team members, right? So my, my warehousing team, I want them to be better at warehousing than I could ever be. My procurement team, I'm like, I need you to be better at procurement than I could ever be. Uh, leaders who really think that they know everything, ah, you know, that works if you have like three team members and you're focusing on one like really specific item. But when you have hundreds of people and offices all over the place and you're touching all these things, you can never know everything. And you really need to make sure that you put people in place who know more than you do, who can be better than you can be, and also that they're going to be continual learners. And it doesn't just have to be formal education. It can be anything. If they're reading, if they're figuring out how to be a better manager, if they're like, what's the newest technology, reading kind of all the different periodicals, white papers, doing exactly what we're doing right now, like interfacing, finding things out. That's, in my opinion, what, what makes a, a good you know leader all the way down to even an individual contributor. And this kind of lets me to one last segue is when we're looking for you know hiring new team members, like skills are awesome. And we do have some where we're like, OK, these are qualification type thresholds. But what we really, uh, what we really look for is character. It's hard to train and ingrain character. But if you find team members who have awesome character, they're going to kick butt at anything you want them to do. And that's what we really try to look for. And that kind of cycles back to all this, right? So, Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, and to that point, you can bring someone in and set them up for success when you're integrating these technologies to help yeah. them to, to succeed. A hundred percent. Yeah, because if, if you set people up with technology to fail, then many times they will do just that. <laughs> yeah. So I also wanted to touch on what you're hearing from your customers. I know it sounds like you're very in tune internally, but what are you hearing from the outside in? Um, you know, what are the pain points or the struggles that your customers are facing today? One of the main pain points is going to be customer service itself. So when we speak to either a new or returning customer, they're frequently discouraged with the state of the industry right now. Imagine that you're a customer and you see that the lead time is four weeks for a product and you need it in three weeks. Sure, you know, a supplier might be able to say, well, that customer needs to plan better. Yeah, that's awesome for next time, but how do you fix it this time? How do you say, at the end of the day, everybody is doing sales, everybody's doing customer service, whether it's internal, external, whatever, you always have stakeholders and customers, right, that you're needing to satisfy. We're finding that customers are saying, hey, when things are out of control, when there is a problem, that they feel that there are less people to try to help solve that, that it has become more transactional and less solution-based. I'm not saying we have the answer for that. I am just bringing up that's one of the, you know, kind of pain points that we see. Much different than over the last few years where it was material costs and, you know, human capital and all these different items, right? All those factors are, are still playing in. But it's when they're saying, hey, we have a problem and we're looking for somebody to solve it, but we can't find somebody to solve this problem for us. So it's, yeah, that's probably one of the items that we see from our side. And then again, it's all of those other items that we're seeing. It's, you know, material costs going up. It's over the last, you know, I've, I've been in this industry almost, you know, 16 years. And during that time period, except for the last few, inflation wasn't as critical into looking at your overall growth. You could say, hey, we know it's a couple percent every year. It's been pretty flat over the last, you know, decade and a half. 
when you're looking at you know year-over-year -year increases in revenue, you were able to kind of distill that out. Now, if an organization and all of their costs went up 10% and on the material costs, and all of a sudden they're just passing that along and they're like, we did so great, we're up 10% year-over-year. No, you, you didn't sell any more pieces. You didn't ship any more lines. You didn't, you know, kind of get into any more customer projects. And, and that's another pain point that we're seeing from a kind of our customers, supply partners. You know, everybody we're talking to is that the growth that they are often seeing right now is is in inflation-based. And, and that's a, a different issue than, than we've had uh, for quite some time. Right. We touched on this in the beginning with... Uh, Fisco's regional setup. Do you feel like that has helped you address um, these customer service concerns, being able to have different locations to deal with different customers face-to-face? -face? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's there's never a one-size-fits-all, right? There are customers who might not necessarily love our business model, but that's the awesome thing about the free marketplace, right? The customers can kind of choose where they want to go. And, and I'm not telling any customer how they have to buy. We just want to offer a solution and if that's the solution that works for them, that, that's awesome. It definitely has helped us with a fair amount of customers, um, but I'm sure there are customers who are like, no, we want to be able to one-click something and I don't want to talk to anybody. And like right. that's, that's awesome too. And there are wonderful channel partners out there to be able to fulfill those uh, customers' needs as well. Great, great. I wanted to move on and ask you uh, something for at, at the larger scale. Um, Amidst all of the geopolitical discussions that are taking place around the trade and uh, supply chain, uh, there seems to be a great deal of resolve on the part of business leaders to solve their own supply chain issues. You know, what have been some of the key understandings that have come from the chaos as of late, and uh, is the industry better for it? Yeah, so this is a long question to un unpack as well. Sure. I'll, I'll hit on a few items. Yeah. The last few years have, have been challenging for businesses, horrible for some individuals, right? People have lost family and friends and, and all of these things. So I'm not just, I won't just kind of brush by that, right? But at least I'll, you know, make an acknowledgement to that. The one thing I will say, and I wholeheartedly believe, is that businesses have come out stronger because of it. Challenges usually foster growth. It's rare that I see a business, a person go through a difficult situation and not take away something from that, right? You know, everyone and every business can decide what they take away from that. And if, you know, they're looking inward and, you know, they're kind of evaluating all these things, there's usually some pretty, you know, good insights that can come from it. Over the last few years, organizations have learned, hey, we have these holes in our supply chain. We have these holes in our logistical infrastructure. We have these holes in all of these different places. How do we kind of patch those up, right? That's where I talked about the lesson learned scenarios a lot at our organization. We found out and said, hey, there, there's this problem that there wasn't a scenario that came up in the past and all of a sudden when it did we go okay how do we solve that and put that into our toolbox and a lot of organizations are doing that and have done that over the last three years right they've said how do we take this information that we've learned and adjust so we can do it better next time and again we'll probably never have this exact same scenario happen right if there is another pandemic with you know 11 trillion dollars put in by the government and all these, you know, kind of crazy factors, right? Like it'll never be exactly the same, but it's being able to say, okay, we've seen this and that just gives us a little bit better crystal ball next time, right? Not a good one, but a little bit better. Outside of that, you know, we've kind of seen just in time 
for for a long time, right? You know, every business school was was kind of pushing this, right? Like all the B schools were saying, "Oh, it's just in time. This is awesome." Lean manufacturing. There's still a place for that, but what a lot of customers, manufacturers, you know, anybody who needed product, right? They realized there are certain things that that doesn't necessarily work for. You have to kind of find out, and a one size fits all approach is usually not the right one. And when the, you know, kind of JIT stuff was across the board, we're going to bring everything in one day uh, before it needs to be on the production line and we'll just hold our suppliers accountable. Yeah, that's awesome. But what kind of stick do you have if they don't have that product ready and waiting? And because it is, you know, like that, I'd say upstream process where it's not just that supplier. There are five other suppliers and logistics companies, and all these other things that people might not necessarily have thought all the way back to, you know, the smelters and the miners and, and all these steps and, you know, pieces in this puzzle. People didn't necessarily think of that. And they just said, listen, these are our terms and conditions and you're going to have this here on this day. Thank you. And once that broke down, organizations start to realize, hey, just-in-time is awesome for certain things that might not shut down our production line or be flight critical or, you know, whatever these items are. And it's just adjusting the procurement models. It's adjusting the business processes going forward. So that's one of the, the good things that I think that came out of all this is, you know, we like to, uh, I like to look at a scientific approach when I look at things, right? And we come up with uh, kind of hypotheses and say, okay, hey, this is we believe our explanation of how the world works or how this process works at this time, but it should be continually evaluated and evolve. And, and this goes back to the lessons learned thing, right? Um, scientists do a great job at this most of the time. And we really want to look at it, you know, like as business leaders from the same standpoint and say, how do we look at what we did, find out what was good, what wasn't good, make the changes and then update kind of our theory of how everything connects. So yeah, I think it's a, a powerful perspective to stand behind. You know, there was certainly many lessons taught, but it was, you know, the businesses that were able to learn those lessons, take a reassessment and, and adjust accordingly that were and are going to continue to be able to succeed and learn from that. I agree. So, you know, moving forward, I just I want to hear your perspective on um, any upcoming trends that have been impacting the traditional supplier distributor networks and have any best practices arisen as of late. This question reminds me of something that, you know, many of us forgot until recently. And this has to do with inventory in channel and kind of, you know, throughout the entire network, right? Everywhere from the manufacturers to the customers and, you know, the distributors in the middle, right? If we look back to undergrad supply chain and you talk about the bullwhip effect, the customer needs 10 parts, the next, you know, link might order a little bit more than that with an anticipation that there's going to be future growth or, you know, whatever, then the next step, it's going to get a little bigger and a little bigger. And, and sometimes that can cause some unintended consequences because organizations are looking and reacting uh, sometimes in, in a positive light, right? That has caused a buildup for some suppliers and for some distributors and some customers of inventory. From our side, you know, we feel that our inventory is, is pretty fit. We have pretty rigorous ROI practices. Sure, right, you know, there are always things that can be tweaked here and there. But where we stand, you know, we don't really feel that we are over inflated in our inventory. We, we're pretty confident in where we're at. We've actually even 
lowered uh, a few of our procurement model numbers that allow us to bring in a little bit more inventory. And, and that kind of sounds crazy to do right now, but we really want to make sure that when we're looking at conversion ratios and things of that nature that we're going, how can we keep these conversion ratios up? Inventory is easier to sell than a promise. And we want to make sure that we're doing it, but in a responsible nature. That is one of the things that I have kind of seen over the last few years that have are, are coming to a little bit more of a head now is that there was, you know, maybe a, an anticipation that demand was going to continue. But some of that demand was based on a lot of money from the government that came in and helped boost all this, right? Whether it was on the individual level, on the corporate level. And then how do we look at some of that stuff critically and say, hey, what do we really believe it's going to be for, you know, the next 18 months, right? And Again, like I said, nobody has a crystal ball. Everybody's taking a stab at this based on all the information they have. But that's definitely something that, you know, I have kind of seen as a trend lately that there has been, you know, the bullwhip effect to propagate probably a little more than there has been, you know, in, at least in the last decade or so. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's helpful to understand because everyone's trying to look and see who's succeeding and, and what are they doing that's making things uh, work for them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, think all good companies should kind of look and, and see across the aisle, right? Like, hey, what is going on? What are they doing? What works well? I also wanted to ask you, from the end user perspective, as more and more users are researching or uh, going to online purchasing models, how has that impacted the role of the suppliers or distributors? We have actually experienced a little bit of the opposite. And, and that sounds crazy to say, but coming out of covid and this you know like lockdown phase in 2020 and then as you know life got a little bit more back to normal in 2021 and 2022 and then you know now finally right with some of the you know full lifting of, of the government orders in now 2023 we've seen individuals sure they might still want to work from home you know sometime and they might want to have flexibility but we have seen individuals when they run into a problem, especially if it's a lead time problem, if they're like, hey, this price that is just listed doesn't work for us, you know, what can we do? Can we give you a target price? All of these different items. The internet can only do so much on, on that, at least for now, right? In, in the future, there's probably all kinds of cool solutions that will come available, but right now what we're seeing is customers needing to talk to somebody. They're saying, hey, I have this and this is what it says, but I need it a week sooner and a dollar less. Or, you know, at that time we might be able to say, hey, based on costs, we can't get it for you for a dollar less. However, how can we come up with a creative solution to say, hey, here's the next price break, here's, you know, this and, and all these things just to be able to try to help educate the buyers on the other side, right? That's what our sales teams and customer service uh, individuals are doing is, is they're really trying to help educate and solve a problem for them. And sometimes, you know, if, if I look and I go on, Amazon is, is awesome and they do a great job. But then there are some things, right, where it's not perfect. If I go on there and I order water and I'm like, okay, I need this six pack of water. I need it to be here tomorrow. Well, when it doesn't show up, well, who do you call? If you're a business and all of a sudden, like, that was critical to your project and the water doesn't show up, sure, you can go to a customer service center. But how much interest does that 
individual that you've probably never talked to in a customer service center have to be able to help you solve that problem, right? You're having to go through kind of like all of these different hoops. And, and that's one thing, you know, this will sound like a sales pitch for Visco, right? But that's what differentiates us a little bit. And, and what we've seen, you know, kind of like go the opposite way during this time period is that we would say, you have a dedicated individual who you're going to work with. Our reps are inside and outside, which seems crazy, but that's part of our business model. Where the same person that's coming out and shaking your hand is that same person, you know, a day, week, month later that you're talking to on the other end of that phone. So it's not somebody coming out and promising you something, and then there's a completely different team trying to help you fulfill that item. It's one individual saying, hey, we've got your order, womb to tomb. We'll figure it out for you. Whatever it is, whatever your problem, we'll help solve it. And if they're not the subject matter expert, then we'll call in our manufacturing partners. We'll bring in our reps. We'll bring in all these other people to be able to help them solve that problem. And that's really like what our sales teams do best. That is, is customer service the heck out of a problem. Then they rely on their connections and network to be able to say, hey, I could critically think about this. I'm not the expert, but I got this manufacturing partner. I'm going to bring them in and boom. And that's how, you know, we've really kind of touched on so many items in a bill of materials for our customers. And that's one of the other things they like. We're, we can sell them everything from a connector to an externally threaded fastener, adhesives and everything in between, right? So, yeah, yeah, the human element is as important as ever. And I think, you know, technology is only as far as it is, but there's the problem solving aspect, which you touched on. It's you need the human integration. Yeah. And that's where, you know, AI in the future, right? There's probably going to be a lot more that is going to come out of this. Definitely good and bad, right? I'll probably you know stand on the, on the same line as Elon Musk on this, right? <laughs> I'm, I am uh, apprehensive to see what comes out of it. Right. You know, we are always looking at things like the Chat GPT um, and all the other items to say, hey, kind of like what is on the forefront out there? Like, are these things cool and gimmicky, and they can help you write an email at this time a little bit faster, or are there some real interesting items that can come out of this you know ibm watson was like kind of all the rage for a while and then now i'd say people are like oh okay cool like that was that was interesting now but what next right what can it really do for me and that's what i'm kind of waiting to see right and there are probably people who already know the answer to that and i'd love to be able to talk to them over the next decade we're going to see very interesting things in my opinion on especially on the ai front absolutely yeah and i think uh no one really does have that crystal ball, so to say, right? We don't, <laughs> no. we don't know what's coming, and, and yep. for the time being, I think being set up to have that human interaction is, is of paramount importance. Yep. Speaking of technology and the advances that we're seeing, uh, have those accelerating advances and maybe a, a lack of in-house engineering departments causing end users and even system integrators to rely more so on the distribution and supplier side? It depends on what segment we are talking about sure on the electronic side yes i think there is you know the manufacturers that we're meeting with here they absolutely want more technical expertise on the distribution front they want individuals to help with that solution sell and not just to customer serve it right but they're looking to say how can you help us design something in because they might have a few faes and you know a few reps but they can only touch so many accounts. So they're looking definitely for that help. It's a little bit of the opposite of what we see in some other industries. And that's kind of where it, it's pretty diverse, right? I could say the people that we're meeting here at EDS are on one end of the spectrum. And if you're at the fastener show, it's kind of maybe on the other end of the spectrum. It also depends on the products, the complexity, 
how many different variables can change in that product offering. That is, in my opinion, aside from just, you know, industry alone, one of the things that we kind of see. An externally threaded fastener versus an enclosure. The externally threaded fastener, there are a few different things that you can do to change that, right? We might have a different finish or, you know, all of these kind of like small nuanced type items. But then on the enclosure side, there are so many variables and so many nuanced items that can change on that. That's where, you know, as you kind of get more toward product complexity, then technical expertise does become more and more important in being able to kind of get that in the hands of the customer. This goes back to the customer service side, not just for us, but for everyone out there. You could have a million things listed online, right? But if the customer can't figure out from all of that information how to solve their problem, then they're probably going to go to something else to try to solve it, right? This is where, you know, organizations do a really good job being able to find kind of what that mix is in between just being able to say, we're just going to put a bunch of parts in inventory and sell those versus we're actually going to, you know, go in and, and try to design in all of these different items, right? There's probably a pretty good, you know, middle ground on that. We really do, you know, from our side of Bisco rely on our channel partners on the manufacturing front. You know, we need them to, you know, help focus on what they do best, right? Which is design and develop products. You know, we really want to look at the reps to be able to help bring that technical expertise when it's needed. And then from our side, right, we want to do the best that we can to be able to inventory, act as the bank for the customer, all of these different items, right? And, and kind of if everyone, you know, like really refocuses on their piece, I, I think there are some pretty good things that could come out of it. And with each supply partner, whether it's manufacturer, distributor, or rep, there's always going to be, you know, some shifting areas in that, right? It's like, who is best at what and how can we make that, you know, work the best for that relationship there. So, yeah, it sounds you really need to understand any customer that you could be dealing with. Right. And you need to understand how to provide the solution to a whole array <laughs> of different customers. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, you know, in that vein, is Bisco offering any new capabilities or skills or, or services to help these users and help these users manage their projects? We have the traditional part builder that, you know, a lot of the kind of e-commerce type organizations are putting out there. We're always looking to enhance that. How can it be better for our customers? How can the individuals that want to utilize the e-commerce front kind of go through our web portal, be able to build parts, figure out whatever, you know, their problem is and, and kind of come up with a solution, right? So we are always building those items out because we do believe that there is a vast array of customers and different customers want different things. So we're building that side out. We're always working on internal trainings with our customer service and sales teams to say, hey, how can you get this kind of like base level of technical knowledge? And then what we see, and this is our business model, right? Everyone's going to have a, a different threshold of how technical they want their you know, customer service, sales, whatever that team is. Once you come to that line, because again, nobody can know everything, it's how do you identify that and then raise your hand to say, I need an expert in this, right? Whether it's, you know, we're talking about technical expertise right now, because even a lot of our, uh, you know, CSRs or our, our individuals who are out doing the sales side, right? They might be an engineer by education, but not necessarily by trade, right? They're not a field application engineer per se. They might have got their undergraduate degree in engineering, but they're not, you know, living and breathing it on a day to day. So, you know, they can, you know, talk with engineers, but it's once something goes past their level of expertise, who do they go to and how do they figure that out? At Bisco, we have 150 plus authorized product lines, hundreds of others, you know, that we're supplying for customers. So, no person could ever really know all of that in, you know, the kind of breadth. So it's how do they 
become technical enough to understand what they know and then be able to have that defining line of what do I not know and then who do I go to? That's where we're building out these uh, vendor information files within our ERP system to say, hey, once you've kind of gotten to this stage, if you don't know the answer, this is the person to go to. If you need to have a solution, you can go to our product management team. If they don't know the answer, then we're going to loop in, you know, somebody from the manufacturing side. The sales teams can reach across the aisle to their reps that they work with for each of those different manufacturers. And it's, it's really being able to identify items so they can say, hey, listen, I've identified this. Now I'm going to go to somebody who knows a little bit more and is a subject matter expert on that. And that's, you know, what we focus on. Every organization does it a little differently. As we continue to grow, I believe that there is a shift in that. You know, I've seen that personally really big organizations you know if you look at your top 50 list right you know the really really you know big players out there they're going to have more technical expertise on hand available within the organization that they can rely on you know organizations kind of lower on the list right are probably going to have a more limited uh, you know capacity on that front and you know as you kind of increase up there right you have more resources more ability more talent in the network to be able to tap on and i, I think that's a sliding scale that you could look at on that top 50 and say hey <laughs> these organizations here probably focus on something you know the top different and again, this is like a generalization. However, you know, I've seen it hold true for a fair amount of them. Granted, there are people, you know, who are kind of lower on the top 50 who are going after certain commodity and saying, here, we're experts on this product, right? And that's a little different business model than Visco's. Ours is more of, you know, broadline, hit their whole bill of material, lower their purchasing costs. Um, so, yeah, it, it just depends, right? There's, there's a, I'd say, distributor out there for everybody. Sure, sure. And it, it, and it seems like, Bisco has really taken the time to put themselves in the end user shoe and, and set up these stepping stones to go through that process and, and have a place to turn and have someone to talk to. It, absolutely. That's, again, why we have so many offices. So the individuals that are out there working with them, they're rooting for the same sports teams. They're going to, you know, to the same grocery store, right? They're right in that person's backyard instead of somebody 3,000 miles away that, you know, might have very little in common with the person that they are talking to on the phone, going out and seeing. Uh, so, yeah, and I think it comes back to what we touched on earlier with the human element, having that involvement, having that accessibility to someone that can uh, help you through that process. Absolutely. I wanted to ask you. I know we brought it up quite a few times already in our discussion that uh, you know there isn't a crystal ball that we can look into, but. I'm going to ask you to do that, <laughs> and, and I want to hear, you know, how do you think the distribution space um, is going to be evolving over the coming 6, 12, 24 months? <laughs> yeah, I touched a little bit on this, and, and I can, I'll, I'll give you as, as much as I, I can give you, and th again, this is, I'll, I'll put an asterisk on this, right? This is, sure. this is based <laughs> on, you know, kind of what we see, what we're looking at, and a lot of it is applicable to our business. My crystal ball might look a little different than somebody who is just selling into aerospace. Because we're serving such a wide range of customers, so many market segments, each of them is going to perform differently going forward. Going back to my comment about aerospace versus industrial and, and how we saw, you know, these kind of 180 degree shifts, one's up, the other's down. And, you know, there's some big flip flops in there. Right. But if we look at it, you know, kind of as the aggregate of all those things, we're, we're seeing a you know, a kind of slow and steady increase. We are pretty bullish on aerospace and defense. And when I say that, I'd say, you know, low double digits, right, is kind of, you know, what we're, we're feeling for the next, you know, 12 to 24 months. In that there are some caveats, 
private space flight. I think there are some challenges, what we just saw with Virgin Orbit. That was one of our customers. You know, a lot of other organizations sold into that. We're kind of seeing a similar thing, especially as capital has more places to put money when there are risk-free ways of return. When you could say, hey, I can get uh, risk-free 4.5% right now. Why do I want to put it in something that's extremely risky that might not have the payoff? You know, when, when the risk-free rate of return is close to zero, yeah, people are going to take some flyers on some things. This is where over the next few years, I think there's going to be a challenge for organizations that are trying to do things outside the box. That's not, I'm not saying that's good. I'm just, this is kind of what, what we're seeing, right? Funding is going to be more difficult to get. People are becoming more risk averse, whether it's on the individual consumer side or on, you know, the kind of business leader side. So all of this tightening will make it more challenging for people that are trying to change the world. That's one thing that we do see. And that, you know, kind of goes from the aerospace items that I was talking about. Again, in each segment, we're going to see a little bit, you know, of like kind of their own nuances. There's going to be more volatility. Absolutely. We look at lots of different trends, everything from all the Dun & Bradstreet's information to public company disclosures. And, you know, we really try to be good stewards of the data, collect it all, evaluate it. My boss says this. I try to live by it. I'm a data guy at the end of the day. I love math. He says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. I believe that that is very true, whether it is parenting children or running a business, right? If, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. There are lots of variables, but there are more variables that look slightly concerning than they did, you know, 12 months ago. Again, that doesn't give you an answer to kind of, of what we see. You know, we're public, so I can't give you too much on like kind of what our internal items are. Uh, individuals can go out there and look at our, our 10Q or 10K, our fiscal year will be ending soon. We end August of this, you know, kind of current time period of 23. So our forecasting and budgets are a little different, right? We're not on lockstep with a calendar. So midway through the year, right, this this will end our, our 2023. We're pretty confident that, that things will continue to hold through the end of our fiscal year. Uh, going into next fiscal year, I definitely think there are going to be uh, more challenging times ahead for anybody out there. Smart businesses, businesses who take a look inside will continue to do well, continue to perform, especially organizations when you look that only have a small percentage of the market share because you can always capitalize and grow by pivoting and, you know, going after market share. So that's one thing to kind of think about. But again, you know, back to my point about the innovation, there will definitely be some slowing over that as kind of the risk-free rates of return are up as high as they are and so many variables. What does the Fed do? What happens on the industrial kind of market for property with the vacancy rates? You know, right now, if you look at, at all the different individuals kind of in that front, they're trying to say, hey, how do we lock people in for the longest lease period we can? Because right now is probably the most money we're going to be able to get. There's going to be some changes. So much of that was, you know, financed by regional banks. That's, yeah, there, there's a lot. And again, it comes back to uncertainty. We don't know the answers to all these things, but over your question, like the next six to 12 months, I think we're going to get a lot more answers depending on what happens coming up all the way until the presidential election. 
um, we'll, we'll kind of see what, what transpires, but yeah, lots of, lots of interesting things ahead and, you know, a different uncertainty than during COVID where that was kind of, you know, like single sided, right? It's, Hey, can you keep your business up and running? How do you get capital? And then, you know, what's happening with all these lead times and price increases, right? Kind of like in that order, all of those different things I think will happen over, over the next, uh, kind of, you know, 12 months, it's, it's how do you get capital uh, based on that? How do you keep your business up and running? So all these things, uh, some organizations will experience and it's going to be interesting. I'm, I'm excited to, to see how it, it plays out. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's a lot of unknown, a lot of variables to consider, but I'd like to keep that perspective in mind of if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Yeah. I think that's a strong consideration to take to heart. It is for sure. And, and it helps you to be able to look at lessons learned, you know, modify things, continually adapt and grow. And the businesses that do that, I believe will, will weather almost any storm. Well, Josh, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for sitting down. It was a great experience and a lot of great insight provided. Yeah, I had a wonderful time. I appreciate the invite and I would uh, love to be back. Thank you for listening to this episode of Innovation Destination. Follow us online at supplychainconnect.com or find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter to stay up to date on the latest supply chain industry news. Do you have any questions or is there a topic you would like us to cover in a future episode? Please contact us at editors at supplychainconnect.com. That's E-D-I-T-O-R-S at supplychainconnect.com.